Good morning. Thank you to Dave and Becky and to Vicki and Bruce Rod for helping us focus our, our thoughts of that opening. The songs are so appropriate and it just kind of brings out the message that we're looking at, the passage we're looking at this morning. Let's just open with a word of prayer, shall we? Our Father, we do just pause and thank you for the opportunity to gather here this morning. Thank you, Father, for creating us, for loving us, just for caring about us. Thank you, Father, for revealing your plan of salvation to us. Thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for the victory that he has won on the cross of Calvary. Father, we thank you for your word and the opportunity to look into it. And again, the freedom to do so. Pray that the words that I speak would be your words and that you just open all of our hearts and minds to fully, more fully appreciate what you have to tell us and to live it out in a practical way. We just thank you for all of your goodness and for this time. And we just pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This morning we're going to continue our study of uh, Jesus' last hours with the disciples. And remember, they were in the upper room Uh, This morning we're going to look at John chapter 16, and we'll look at verses 16 to 33. If you're using one of the the brown Bibles in the pews, uh, it can be found on page 1,678. So up to this point, they've shared a meal together. Jesus has told them he's going to be betrayed. He's given them an example of servanthood by washing their feet. He's told them, that there are many rooms in his father's house and that he goes to prepare a place for them. He's also said that he is the one true way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the father but through him. He's warned them that just as the world hates him, the world's going to hate them, his followers. Jesus has told them about the coming work of God's Holy Spirit. And through it all, we know that love is the key. And Jesus had given his disciples a commandment to love each other. Verses 16 to 19 says this from John 16. In a little while you will see me no more. Then after a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, in a little while you'll see me no more? Then after a little while you'll see me, and because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you'll see me no more? Then after a little while you'll see me. The disciples really couldn't understand what he meant by that in a little while. He's with them now. 
Some feel that it refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had just told them about. In a little while, you'll see me through my, the Spirit. Others feel it refers to the time when Jesus is going to come back again. We know, though, that in a little while, Jesus is going to be crucified, his body is going to be placed in a tomb, and that he's going to rise again. And when he rises again, when he's resurrected, he's with them for about 40 days. And I think it's fitting that this is what is meant by in a little while. For a few days, you'll, in a couple of days, you're going to see me no more after he's crucified and buried. And then in a little while, they'll see him again when he rises. Verse 20. I tell you the truth. You'll weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. The disciples have been with Jesus somewhere for about three years, give or take, right now. They've heard him teach. They've seen his miracles. They're tight. They're close friends. They're bros. They're best friends forever, BFF. And thinking, you know, he gives new meaning to that, isn't it? Forever. Early in the chapter, though, we saw that they're so caught up in the shock that he says he's going to leave them They don't even think to ask him, where is he going? Jesus tells them they'll weep. They're going to cry out loud, just as Mary did when her brother Lazarus died. She was weeping. It was a loud wailing. And the weeping and mourning just shows how deep a sorrow, how big a loss it was. It's something that strikes to the the core of your being. And they, they think they're going to be lost without him. At least for a little while they might be. And the Bible tells us, though, the world rejoices. And this is what happened when Jesus was crucified, wasn't it? The religious leaders saw Jesus as a threat to their status and their control over the synagogue. And in essence, because of what the synagogue meant, he was threatening their whole way of life. He was threatening their culture. And they were trying to eliminate him by killing him. And they succeeded when he was crucified. Or so they thought, anyway. But then the grief is going to turn to joy. And Jesus compares the upcoming joy to that which a mother feels when her baby is born. And I looked at this and I thought, you know, obviously there's people in this room who are infinitely more qualified to speak on the pain and the suffering that goes with childbirth than I am. But I think I'm on safe ground in saying that, relatively speaking, that pain is short-lived compared to the joy that comes following that event. And it's interesting because the reference to childbirth is found in a few places in the Bible. For example, the, some of the Old Testament prophets compared the terrors of in judgment, or sorry, the terrors of judgment, and the terrors of war, with the pain and suffering that comes with childbirth. You can see it in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Micah. And I want to just look at one quick one in Hosea, chapter 13. 
Hosea 13 and 11 says, I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. The next verse reads this. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Sound familiar? This is what Paul referred to in 1 Corinthians when he teaches about Jesus rising from the dead and defeating death. In 1 Corinthians 15.57 we read, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The disciples will again see Jesus when he's resurrected or rises from the dead and he conquers death. The disciples aren't quite sure what to think when they realize Jesus' body isn't in the tomb. They're a bit frightened when they first see him again, but everything turns to amazement when they finally understand what he had been telling them would happen and the joy that would follow. Joy in knowing who he really is. Joy in having a relationship with God through his son Jesus. Joy that nobody can take away. Joy that would result in them giving up their lives for him and following him wholeheartedly despite the consequences that they would face. Can it get any better than that? Verse 23 says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be made complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father loves you because you have loved me and have believed I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. In verse 23, Jesus prefaces what is to come with in that day, likely referring again to the resurrection and the time after. Starting with the day Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples won't have to ask him for guidance or help, as they'll have a a much fuller understanding of who he is and what he was teaching them. And the Holy Spirit is going to come and dwell within them and guide them. Jesus often spoke to disciples in parables. Some understood the meaning of the parables at times. For example, sometimes the Pharisees clued in that he was talking about them and didn't really appreciate it. But more often than not, the people didn't understand the full meaning of what Jesus was saying to them. In Mark chapter 4, verses 10 to 13, Jesus spoke about the parable of the sower. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But, on, but those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seen, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. And that's a reference to Isaiah chapter 6. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? 
And then he goes on to explain that parable to them. And it wasn't until Jesus died and rose from the dead that the disciples understood what he had been saying. They're not going to get new revelation or new information, but they're going to get a fuller understanding of what he's been telling them all along. He then seems to move on to the subject of prayer and tells the disciples they'll be to ask God the Father in Jesus' name. Up to this point, they didn't have to. Jesus was with them. He lived with them. They talked to him. They were used to speaking to him directly. They also looked to him for help for their physical needs. For example, when Lazarus died and Jesus rose him, or Jesus rose him from the dead, he rose from the dead because of Jesus. Or when they were in the boat during the fierce storm, remember Jesus was sleeping. He wakes up and he calms the wind and the waves. The people also would have been accustomed to approaching God through someone else, someone who acted as a mediator on their behalf. For example, God had commanded the people to bring their offerings and sacrifices at specific times and in specific ways. The people themselves, though, did not conduct the sacrifices. That was the role of the priests. In Hebrews 5, we read that every high priest is selected from among among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And the high priest needed to offer a sacrifice for himself before he could even worry about the people. And within the temple itself was a veil, or a curtain, that separated one court, the inner court from the outer. And we can sometimes refer to that as the holy or the most holy place, the holy of holies. And in that place, the high priest could only enter once, once a year. But when Jesus died on the cross, that veil or that curtain was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin once and for all. And he himself is our mediator. Jesus tells us to approach God in his name. We don't have to pray to anyone else. We can go right to God through Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And what an incredible and awesome privilege. What an, it's so amazing that we can just pray to God. Think about it. We're praying to the one who created, or if you looked up and saw the skies. That's just a fraction of what he created and what he holds in the palm of his hand. And yet, when you think of how small we are in comparison, he created us and he loved us. And we can pray to that amazing, incredible God. It just never, sorry, just never ceases to amaze me that that one, that great, awesome, holy, perfect one created and loved us. And he knows everything about us and still loves us. To me, that's even more amazing. We can only get to the Father through the Son. It's nothing we deserve. It's nothing we can earn. It's not as if there's two lists. There's a good list and a bad list and you hope that the good list outweighs the bad and then you get to heaven. No. The standard is perfection and all of us have fallen short. We can't negotiate our way over there. We can't buy it. We can only get there by accepting the fact that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. 
and by putting our trust in Him. I don't know about you, once in a while I think of the sheer number of people in this world who are here now, who have been in this world, and the volume of prayer that's going up, and think, wow, and my God, I hope your God, is big enough to handle all of that. He doesn't need anybody else to help him answer prayer. He's got it covered all by himself. Matthew Henry said, Asking of the Father includes a sense of spiritual wants and a desire of spiritual blessing with conviction there to be had from God only. It includes also the humility of address to Him with a believing confidence in Him as a Father able and ready to help us. Asking in Christ's name includes an acknowledgement of our own unworthiness to receive any favor from God. A complacency in the method God has taken of keeping up a correspondence with us by His Son and an entire dependence upon Christ as the Lord of our righteousness. One of the benefits of being the speaker on any given Sunday is that it forces you to dig into the Word. And sometimes you come across something you haven't noticed before. And something that forces you to take a step back and say, is that what it's really saying? And when I was preparing for this message, a couple of things jumped out at me. The first was from verse 26 when Jesus said, In that day you will ask me, ask in my name. He says, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. But Steve, you just told us that Jesus is our mediator and the Bible tells us elsewhere he intercedes for us. Romans 8.34 says, Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I am hmm. not saying that I ask the Father on your behalf, but he's our interceder. To paraphrase Easton's revised Bible dictionary, or part of it anyway, the intercession of Christ refers to him interceding continually for us in heaven where he's said to appear in the presence of God for us. His advocacy with the Father for his people rests on the basis of his own all-perfect sacrifice. Thus he pleads for and obtains the fulfillment of all promises of the everlasting covenant. The Concise Bible Dictionary talks about Christ interceding for his saints while in their present state to bring them into conformity with the place justifying forgiveness he has given them. Also to raise them above their trials and lead them on as priests into the blessed joys and occupations of the sanctuary. Uh, I may be wrong on this. This is where I was led, or what I've been led to understand so far as I look into this. I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus doesn't have a big list of things he takes to the Father and prays for. Instead, he intercedes for us just by virtue of his presence there with God the Father in heaven. He's the one who shed his blood and died for our sins the one who rose and conquered death. And I was going to suggest to you, it's like he's there with the Father and he's there when the prayers go up. Remember, we're praying right to the Father through Jesus. And he kind of looks at the Father and says, yep, he's mine. Yes, she belongs to me. Yes, I died for that one. And 
so his intercession, so when he's interceding for us, yes, there's that part of advocacy that we see in Romans and Hebrews and 1 John 2, where, yes, Jesus is our advocate. He's the one there. And if he's, you know, maybe it's more than he's just nodding, but he's saying, yes, I died for Bruce, for Vicky, for David. And when God hears that, God looks and says, yes, innocent. The price is paid in full. And as we continue, First John tells us that those, uh, those who belong to him shouldn't be sinning. But if we do sin, we have that advocate who is Christ. And we are to confess our sins. And as we do that, Jesus is still there in heaven with God the Father, saying, yes, mine, forgiven. So I don't think we have any contradiction here with whether Jesus is there interceding. But this is just my understanding, or the conclusion I came to, of how he's doing that. Jesus also said, the Father will give whatever they ask for in his name. Anything? In Matthew 7, chapter sorry, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if the son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And not that long ago, we read in chapter 14 of John, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask, for me, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. God gives us gifts that are beneficial for us, that will draw us closer to him. He hears and answers our prayers when they're aligned to his good, perfect, sovereign will. Ask and receive. You will receive. Your joy will be made complete. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but a while back, one of my sisters had a saying in her house at uh, Christmas time. She said, those who don't believe, don't receive. And I'm not sure if this was to keep the older son from spilling the beans to the younger son, or if she just used it to kind of extend uh, a fun part of the, the holidays uh, in their household. But it was just, maybe it kept them guessing a little while longer, I'm not sure. Needless to say, they outgrew that stage many years ago. And they still, but they still received gifts. Hmm. Didn't have to believe to receive in that case. The same can't be said for our circumstance though, can it? Jesus offers the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven to those who believe and put their trust in him. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that so whoever, whosoever what? Believes, thank you, has everlasting life. He had told them earlier that evening that he is the way, the truth, and the life. 
You have to believe in order to receive the gift that he offers. Do you believe this? Do you believe in Jesus? If you're here this morning and you've had any questions about this, please feel free to come see me or there'll be a, a whole lot of other people here who'd be happy to talk to you more about that. Our desire here at Bible Fellowship Assembly is that everybody experience life in Jesus. In verse 27, Jesus told the disciples, the Father loves them because they love Jesus and have believed that he came from God. The Father loves them because they love Jesus. Hmm. In 1 John 4, 9 and 10, we read, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans 5.10 says, When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's a contradiction? I'm going to suggest to you that God started what seems to be a bit of a circular process. God is love and certainly demonstrated it when he sent his son to earth to die for us. Through his grace, we come to know and to love God. One way to show our love for him is by keeping his commandments, by following his word. Our love for Jesus confirms or testifies to the Father's love for us. So it kind of goes around. God shows us grace, we love, and as we love, it testifies, it shows his love for us. And as we follow, we get closer to him and grow in love. And our love grows stronger and our joy is made complete. Dave Jenkinson mentioned this morning, just uh, yesterday was a celebration. It had a celebratory tone to it. And as we remember Anna's life, we celebrated just who she was and more so who she was in Jesus. And there was that joy in knowing where she is. Yes, despite the the pain and the grief, there's joy. And the joy is complete as we grow closer and closer to Jesus. And I think it's completed when we reach that point where we're with him. Those who know the Son and the Father can approach the Father based on faith and trust in his only begotten Son. In other words... God the Father listens to those who are his and those who have been adopted into his family through Jesus' sacrifice. And because Jesus has gone back to be with his Father, we can approach him with confidence, knowing he'll hear us. Verse 29, Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now you can see that you know all things and you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus answered. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. The disciples are starting to understand what Jesus is telling them. 
They confirm Jesus knows everything and this knowledge makes them believe he came from God. Now, we may wonder how they didn't clue into this before as Jesus taught them, as they saw his miracles. But in fairness to them, we can look back on our own lives, can't we? And others can look at our lives and say, hmm, you know, God was working with you all that time and we just didn't get it. This morning, Stan mentioned at the communion service, just remembering when he first came to the Lord, and it was like God just turned the light on. And that's what it is, in some ways, for the believers here, for the disciples. And I hope we've all experienced that here, that he's turned the light on and we've realized who he is. Many, if not most, of the versions of the Bible have Jesus asking, do you believe or do you now believe? The New International Version notes Jesus saying, you believe at last. I think in some ways it depends on where you put the emphasis. Do you believe? Or you believe at last. I would suggest that Jesus knows that they do believe in him to the extent that they understand. But he's warning them in the next verse, but you believe, that's wonderful. Now hang on to your hats because you're going to be scattered. Their belief is going to be put to the test and they're going to leave them all alone. Well, from a human perspective, perhaps. So the statement of belief is interesting and they seem to be a bit of, on a bit of a spiritual high. Finally understood what Jesus was saying. Yes, we believe, Lord. You came from God. And pretty soon they're going to come crashing down. Their lives like ours seem to be a bit of a roller coaster, don't they? If you look back in the Gospels and you see disciples, they're up, they're down. They're kind of going off to the side and back around. Sometimes the roller coaster goes fast. Sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it feels we're being turned upside down. Sometimes it's exhilarating, terrifying. Put in your own adjective, I guess. It's been said we don't grow on the mountaintops, but we grow in the valleys. It's great to share our happiness and praise God when things are good, but it's the trials and the challenges that let us grow closer to Him. We can't explain why certain things, sometimes really bad things happen, but I would suggest there's a few general reasons. One is that we live in a fallen world where sin and disobedience to God is prevalent. And God, in his wisdom, allows things to happen at times. If you look at the book of Job, God was, I'll use the term bragging about Job, saying, look at what a, a great person Job is. He stays close to me. And Satan said, yeah, but you know what? That's only because you've blessed him with. You've given him so much. Look, at he's on a high. But you take that away from him, and he's going to curse you. And God allowed Job to be tested. But through it all, despite losing wealth, family, status, everything else, his friends were criticizing him. Job stayed close to God. He clung to God. And he was rewarded for that. God may also allow things to happen in our lives because he's preparing us for something bigger and better. When you look back in the Bible, you see examples of people going through different trials and tribulations, but it's to prepare them. Think of Joseph. 
His older brothers took him. They made fun of him because he had dreams. And they took him and they sold him into slavery. They threw him into a pit. And then when slave traders came by, what a great opportunity to get rid of him. He's taken off to Egypt. He's been given tasks. He's doing a pretty good job. And then he's falsely accused of attempted rape. And he's thrown in jail. And yet, through all this, God was preparing him for a bigger task. And that was to fulfill his covenant. Because when the famine came, it was Joseph who was providing for his family, for the Israelites. Perhaps he's allowing something to happen as a way of discipline. Hebrews 12 says, If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. 10, the second half of 10. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. When we're going through various trials and tribulations, you know, it may be tempted to say, we're tempted to say, well, where is God? How could a holy, loving God let this happen to me? And we're told in Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Some may not care for this verse and think it's just a cheap saying, but I think it's important to remember to look at things from God's perspective. When we give up control and let him be Lord, when we let him direct our lives, our perspective changes. Hebrews 11 reminds us of people who have stuck with God through thick and thin, even when they didn't see the final outcome they were waiting for. Philip Yancey said, Paradoxically, faith develops best amid uncertainty and confusion. If you doubt that, read for yourself the life stories of the people recorded there. And he's talking chapter 11. And it's from his book, I Was Just Wondering. These people looked at their circumstances through God's lens, so to speak, and put their faith and trust in him. The writer of Hebrews goes on to remind us not to lose heart and also reminds us of what Jesus went through. It wasn't long after the disciples professed their understanding and belief in Jesus that they ran away and abandoned him. Matthew 26, Jesus told them, This very night you will fall, fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And that's a reference to Zechariah 13. In his book, Just Like Jesus, Max Lucado talks about finding gold in the garbage and notes that from the outside looking in, all we see is betrayal. The disciples have left him. The people have rejected him. In the chapters to come, we're going to see not only were they scorning him before, but they physically mocked and beat him. Never has so much trash been dumped on one being. And he says, we can stack on a bunch of other things to see what Jesus had to face. From a human point of view, Jesus' world has collapsed. Have we ever felt that way? Yes, Jesus knew God's plan, and he knew why he was sent to earth. And we don't have that same level of understanding, but we're encouraged to follow his example. Despite the fact that disciples were going to scatter and leave him alone, he really wasn't, was he? God the Father was with him. No matter what we're going through, we can rest assured he's got our backs. Psalm 23, 4, David wrote, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. 
Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. In verse 33, the term take heart could be rendered have courage, be courageous. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. His message to the disciples applies to us as well. We need to put our faith and trust in Jesus. And when the trials of life come up, when the sorrows and everything else comes up, we too can have peace in him. Take heart, be of good courage, for he has overcome the world. Our Father in heaven, again, we just thank you for this opportunity of gathered today. We thank you again and we, for your love, for your goodness. We thank you that we can lay all our sorrows at your feet and you hear us because the blood of Jesus has washed us clean. Father, help us as we go out just to always have the right perspective, a perspective of your love. Help us, Father, to go out now, we ask, to share that love with others so that they too may experience Jesus. And we ask in his most precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.